is changing fast and the issues are becoming increasingly complex from global warming to social change to disparity in wealth. All of these issues ask us to dig deep. Each of us has the capacity to adapt, creatively adapt to changing outside conditions, but we really haven't tapped into that much. And of course, the aggression is a sign that we're failing to do so. My name is Donna Jones. This is the Insight to Action podcast. This is the place where you'll gain insights and inspiration from innovative thinkers and doers in business who hold a higher vision for humanity. If you're interested in co-creating the future moment by moment, this is the program where you'll meet people like you. In the fall of 2014, Professor Michael Manelli and I talked about Wicked Problems and the Price of Fish, his most recently published book at the time, and today we're talking about blockchain tech. You may not know this, but when you swipe your card at Starbucks or any one of the coffee shops you frequent, it takes three to five business days for the transaction to take place. And this is my own personal pet peeve as a traveler. When you make an international transfer of money from home to family or, as I did last fall, between companies located in Europe and North America, for instance, in addition to the transaction fee you pay, the money arrives is a whole lot less than it was sent thanks to all the different intermediaries sneaking fees off. Today with me, as I said, Michael Manelli began designing shared distributed ledgers 20 years ago, which is a big part of blockchain. He's a leading thinker in fintech, and he's the emeritus, how do you say that, emeritus? Emeritus. The emeritus professor of commerce at Gresham College in London. He's also the co-founder and chairman of Yen, the city of London's leading commercial think tank which was established in 1994, and I love your purpose, to promote societal advance through better finance and technology. Yeah. So getting back to that person who's buying, selling, or transferring funds, how will blockchain change their lives? Donna, it's, uh, it's great, great to be here calling from London. And yes, emeritus just means very old, I'm afraid. Um, right. Well, what is blockchain going to do? Well, the, the answer is uh, on funds, uh, pro- possibly not much, uh, and I know that uh, sounds a bit contrary to the hype that y- you perceive, but let me give just a little bit of background to the listeners. Um, the uh, mutual distributed ledger field began at least 20 years ago and, and perhaps old, uh, longer ago than that, and in fact, there have been a number of ledgers out there. Uh, we, we built ours in 95. Um, a friend of mine, Ian Grigg, uh, built one in 96 to tackle some aspects of wholesale payments. Stanford University uh, may well have uh, developed a prototype blockchain in the late 90s for archiving uh, academic work. In 2004, Ripple, a system that's still around today, implemented a prototype blockchain. And in fact, the government of Estonia in 2007 uh, moved its uh, citizens largely onto blockchains for government services. So th- they're not new, but uh, obviously we were making a lot of headway if we're talking in 2016 about how exciting they are. And really what changed things was the launch of Bitcoin at the beginning of 2009. So a paper was written by this uh, anonymous uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. We're not too sure who he or she or the club that may represent them are. But uh, anyway, that, that, was, that was it. And in 2009, even Bitcoin languished for a while, sort of unnoticed. But finally, the financial services industry, uh, at great expense, managed to put together Bit and Coin and thought this might have something to do with them. And so around 2014, we saw a huge uh, splurge of interest in this area. Now, the application that was being built on top of uh, the distributed ledger in the case of Bitcoin was a cryptocurrency. And 
there are many other things that you can build on top of distributed ledgers, and I'll go into those uh, as we go through the through our chat. But the difficulty we've had has been, despite uh, being very thankful that Bitcoin has brought attention to the blockchain, uh, the difficulty we've had is most people assume that all blockchains uh, work the way that the Bitcoin blockchain works. So let's let's go through just uh, one element of the basics, and I'll hand back to you. I've been using the term mutual distributed ledger in preference to blockchain. Well, why is that? Well, a mutual distributed ledger is probably something I think if you if your listeners come away remembering that phrase, it will hopefully help them. Uh, ledger means that what we have is a data structure, uh, just like any other ledger, an accounting ledger, a registry of land, uh, uh, academic degrees, what have you, a register that is immutable, unchangeable. Uh, it, it is permanent in the sense that it, it really cannot be altered. Distributed, just like many other things that uh, are on the Internet, the Internet itself, email, peer-to-peer, -peer, we've distributed the system of the ledger around a, a large number of people, and therefore we get those advantages. Uh, the whole reason the Internet began, the idea that it could survive nuclear war, you know, the, we'll be here after the cockroaches rule the Earth. Um, that was the, the, the sort of purpose of it. And so the distribution achieves that. And mutual is probably, we'll come on to this later, but um, the point I'd like to make is because everybody has a copy of the data and because that copy cannot be altered or changed, in a way, it's owned by everybody or the obverse, it's owned by nobody. But nobody can walk away with a copy of the data and say that's my data, I own it, and only, uh, only I can give it to you. So that's the, that's the exciting element of the field. In terms of payments, um, I'm skeptical as to how much effect some of these cryptocurrencies will have. Will blockchains be closely aligned with payments? Most certainly. But I, you know, we will be seeing, I think, mutual distributed ledgers in a lot of applications right next to payments. So all the documentation concerning insurance, all the documentation concerning a ship uh, leaving harbor. But the payment, oddly, uh, it may be the least of it. It may still remain on traditional systems. So what does the blockchain tech do? I mean, what I heard in that answer that you gave is, is, first of all, your data is private. Secondly, you've got some transparency as to where the data is registered, which are two things you don't have in the existing system. What else does that blockchain tech do that the existing system doesn't? Well, another way of looking at this is, is to remember that ultimately a blockchain or a distributed ledger is just a database. We've had databases over many years. I love to point out that Databases and ledgers and accountancy are at the root of civilization. Over here in London, you can go to the British Museum and being a proud accountant, although sometimes my family fade away, I can walk into the Sumerian section. I can see the cuneiform tablets that are there, and they list all of the various ways uh, in which Hethos sat eight bushels of wheat or two, two, two barrels of beer or whatever. Um, there's actually a lovely transcription there of a uh, basket weaver at the British Museum and all the transactions and who owes him what money and all that. The Sumerians were great people, and none of these uh, biblical stories of floods and all that. Well, all right, they blew it with the traffic of Gilgamesh, but you know what we've preserved are the important things, the accounting records. So these accounting records uh, are, are fundamental to our civilization. And historically, we've gone through a whole variety of technologies. Um, many people forget about tally sticks in the medieval ages used to take a hazel or a willow stick and split it in half, and then I could trade what you owed me with somebody else. And when it came back around in a huge circle back to you, you'd match the stick up and say, yes, I do owe this person, even though I've never met them, uh, what, I, what I owed Michael originally, and I cancel my debt. 
money, uh, paper money, is in many ways a distributed ledger. We have, uh, if you dig into your pocket, you can see exactly how much is on the national ledger that you have in cash. Um, so uh, paper became very important. And then in the 60s and early 70s, we saw the rise of databases. Now, these databases were originally single-user and then multi-user. But what the mutual distributed ledgers or the blockchains are doing is they're creating multi-organizational databases where the power structure has been altered. And this allows them to act as central third parties, which is if, if, if your listeners wish to remember mutual distributed ledgers, probably the next thing they need to remember is uh, central third parties. Now, central third parties are everywhere. Normally, anywhere there's a registry, there's a central third party. If I have a registry of my academic degrees and I wish to get a transcript or proof that I attended such and such a school or a university, um, I, I contact them and they send it back and the people accept that because they're seen to be the central third party, the authoritative register. We have central third parties in all areas to do with payments. We have uh, central third parties in exchanges. We have central third parties in central securities depositories, uh, CCPs, and all the things that, uh, that fuel the large-scale capital markets. We have central third parties in anything to do with the government, land registry, uh, driver's license records, etc. And what this does is it lowers the power of those trusted third parties to create natural uh, monopolies, or as we say in economic terms, to, you know, to extract rent because the data is no longer owned by them. It's shared in common. That's the, probably the biggest key point. That's the mutual part of it. Exactly. The mutual is the exciting bit. So now this is a mindset shift, a massive mindset shift on the, you know, inside the financial sector. Despite the fact that he's been around for 20 years, it's almost like a simmering kind of operating system and that's now stepping up into, into more mainstream. How are banks responding How's the financial sector responding to to the greater focus on blockchain? Well, um, you know, the the talk probably in uh, 2014 was all very much uh, geared towards cryptocurrencies, and suddenly in 2015, a bit like um, politicians, bankers were all wandering around rooms saying, you know, hey, you idiot, you know, forget forget the uh, the cryptocurrency or forget Bitcoin, you know, what really matters is is the blockchain. So they were all very, very excited about it. But you did see quite a few, frankly, ludicrous announcements. We're moving to blockchain because it's uh, smarter and cheaper and faster. Well, uh, actually, blockchains are, at least in the ones that they were looking at, the principally Bitcoin one, quite slow. A blockchain on Bitcoin, or the Bitcoin blockchain, takes about uh, 10 minutes to process a transaction, which in uh, normal markets is seen to be exceedingly slow. Um, so what the banks were responding to, in my opinion, was largely fear. Uh, they formed a consortium called R3 in 2014, uh, and I think it's now got over 50 banks in it. Uh, my personal view is that I think that R3 is doing some, some good work in helping people to think about it and create standards, but it's difficult to see what 50 banks are going to do in common. They, they just simply don't share enough common interests, and to some degree, it allows uh, bank directors to go in front of their annual general meetings, and when there's that awkward question from the audience, what are you doing about uh, distributed ledgers or blockchains, uh, we're participating in the largest consortium on the planet uh, to deal with this. Um, R3 itself has gone through a number of directional changes from being a standards body, supposedly, or a talking shop, to choosing uh, which uh, blockchain it intended to use. Uh, this January, it announced that it was going to use the Ethereum blockchain, 
and then it changed its mind in April, having spent most of last year deciding it was Ethereum. In April, it stated that it was going to build its own called Corda. So we're still in the dark about what their plans are. To be frank, this wouldn't be the first time the banking industry has spent a lot of money on an initiative that sort of run away from them. Uh, I always think of the Global Straight Through Processing Association in 2000 that uh, folded quietly two years later, having spent $100 million. At the moment, uh, uh, the R3 consortium is proposing to spend about $200 million. Um, But, you know, things change, and there may be some clarity from it. That's banks, but this is a head-on attack on an existing working system, leaving aside the, the costs and the frustration that you felt with it at the beginning. In fact, some of the really exciting areas have got nothing whatsoever to do with banking or payments. So I mentioned insurance and shipping earlier. These are two areas with huge documentation problems. So if I'm trying to move a ship and I might, I might send out something like 80 to 200 different pieces of documentation to anywhere from 15 to 45 different organizations, each of those documents, my manifest, my ship, my, my bill of lading, my insurance certification, all this is costing me a lot of money, 40 or $50 to process each element of that. So moving the ship is very expensive. If I reduce the cost of a SWIFT transaction, the payment at the end of all of that from, say, 10 or $15 uh, to 2 or $0.03, cents, that's almost irrelevant. Now, it's you know several thousand-fold improvement. But the truth is that's not where the costs are. So we're seeing a lot of other industries paying much more attention to it than banking. And in fact, um, I would say insurance has been the biggest sector and the next pharmaceuticals in terms of live applications. Both personal insurance and wholesale insurance. Yeah, more on the wholesale side than the personal. If you go back to the mutuality bit, if you're taking out a, a, an automobile uh, insurance or home and contents insurance, with a major provider, you really don't have a lot of power. You know, you take their terms and you rely largely upon the market to keep them in line. That uh, if I'm offering automobile policies out of line, I will, I will lose customers over time. In the wholesale markets, uh, you've got here in London, you've got about 200 brokers and about 100 underwriters operating in the global wholesale insurance hub of the world. Um, they're all uh, at much more parity and they're a little bit concerned about people having a central third party who has complete control of the records. So they, they like this idea of data sharing. It's, you know, it's very attractive to them. Same thing in the shipping industry. Uh, same thing in things like um, forestry and timber. Uh, there have been several attempts to produce a, the ultimate timber registry of all the timber that's moved from certified forests out and been reprocessed. And, of course, the industry has reacted badly that, to that because often a central third party exercises its natural monopoly rights and says, well, this is only costing me pennies uh, to give you, but, you know, I can charge you $1,000 because I'm the central third party that you have to use, and therefore you'll have to pay those costs. So uh, I think the changes are out there. I have a sort of an ivy theory of technology. Uh, you know, I mean ivy, the plant. <laughs> I, I feel that too many people spend a lot of time looking at a piece of new technology like, uh, like cryptocurrencies and say, well, this is going to destroy the banking sector. The answer is that the banking sector has a lot of room to bring its payments down. Um, a Bitcoin transaction costs in energy terms about $2.50 on average, might get down to about $0.10. Cents. But actually, banks can process four fractions of a penny if they feel like it. They just haven't had to in the past. They haven't uh, had competition, and they've largely, in international field, operated in a, 
in a, in a group called SWIFT, which some would claim is a cartel and others would claim, well, it's just a cooperative. It's, it's sort of how you, how you pick it. So in the end, will blockchain be the wake-up call for them to switch or to, to, to change their purpose from being more self-serving to something broader, like looking, you know, serving society as a whole? The, the answer is probably not. I, I don't mean to sound defeatist. I mean, it's, it's certainly a shot across the bows. But, you know, the Ivy, the Ivy technique is broadly that here's this big swift tree, you know, big, 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 chunky tree. The Ivy, I think, will grow around it. Now, maybe 20 or 30 years from now, we'll kind of look at the center and say, whatever happened to that big tree trunk? It seems to have rotted away. But the excitement is not going to be trying to rip the tree out and plant a, a brand new oak. It's just not going to happen. So I, I, feel that, uh, I feel that in the payments area, the banks have got a lot of space to decrease their costs. As somebody inside the industry, my estimate is they could probably do uh, large-scale international transactions for pennies if there was sufficient competition. And while Bitcoin or some of the other cryptocurrencies such as Ethereum indicate that there might be potential for that, people aren't, aren't using it as yet. And as we know, many of these have had some very high-profile problems as well as structural problems. Uh, for example, these are not accepted currencies. So when I take as a large bank, if I take $100 million worth of Bitcoin onto my uh, balance sheet, uh, somebody's going to say, well, that's not really real money. So where's the real money behind it? And I have to say, well, it's another bank who's guaranteeing that. So now I've got another bank's guarantee on my balance sheet, and I wind up with myself, sort of, I might as well be taking the bank's promise that it's going to pay me $100 million. It's got nothing to do with the Bitcoin. And these are some of the real issues with uh, supplanting fiat currencies, because fiat currencies are the dominant form of money, and they're the, the money that government likes to see us use and that we like to use, too. I'm not, it's, not, it's not a conspiracy theory, but because the governments expect us to use it, and because that's what the regulator wants, it's going to be extremely hard for a cryptocurrency uh, to supplant any of these existing approaches. So I think they're going to have to find ways via blockchain to kind of grow around the tree uh, that is the current payment system. I don't think a direct attack works. Now, I understand Barclays Bank is adopting blockchain and it, as part of a joint to collaborate and develop a joint solution leading other banks. What did they gain by taking that kind of an approach? Well, uh, well Barclays is, has a number of high-profile announcements of things that they're doing in what's called the Barclays Accelerator here in London out in Whitechapel. Uh, but they are by no means alone whatsoever. Uh, BNY Mellon has an accelerator, Northern Trust, Santander, so I, I wouldn't pick on Barclays. They're all out there talking it up. Uh, let's be honest, it's good marketing. To my knowledge, not a single one of them has a live application. They're all proofs of concept. Uh, you know, One of your listeners may correct me, uh, but I've been digging around quite a bit, and every single one of them seems to be, from the banks, a proof of concept. It is important, I think, if you're a financial institution, this technology is going to, is going to be the future. If we, if we were building a payment system from scratch today, we would probably use mutual distributed ledgers. My point is, in the case of SWIFT and all the other payment networks that we have, they do exist, they do work, they're already regulated, so there's going to be a lot of energy to displace them. So I think the banks are doing it for marketing purposes and they're doing it to learn, which can't be a bad thing. No, indeed, indeed. Part of the massive amount of change going on is, is, has to do with the decision-making mindset that goes with how you respond to any disruptor, whether it's blockchain or anything else. Will the technology fail if the learning-slash-growth mindset is not present in the executive decision-making levels? Or will the companies and executives that fail to make the mindset jump be the ones that fail? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a, it's it's an excellent question, Donna. I, I I find in in so many areas that incumbents are normally very poor at adopting new technology, uh, and I'll go well outside of finance, and I could talk about uh, what happened in the case of the biotech industry and the large pharmaceuticals. I could talk about what's happened in exploration companies uh, in the oil and gas sector. Large large firms are normally not very innovative. So I think it's a learning process. The true innovation is most likely to come from smaller firms, and then the larger firms will find various ways of adapting or adopting to them. So I'm, I think it's great that they're out there and learning. I think it's great that some of the executives realize that there's changes afoot, but I don't expect the true innovation to be coming from the larger firms in any case. I don't think you'd be alone on that front at all, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so. Now, let's take a different angle on this altogether because of the, the, the whole business of existing systems and, and what blockchain implies. What are the environmental impacts of using blockchain technology, energy costs specifically, if possible? Just, just what, you know, when we talk about the, the cost of storing and all of that other kind of stuff, what, what happens there? Yes, well, I would again draw a distinction between cryptocurrencies and mutual distributed ledgers. Uh, cryptocurrencies and mutual distributed ledgers uh, really consume energy and uh, have an environmental impact in 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 two ways. Uh, it's the validation process that they use, uh, the communication costs, which do consume energy. I remember once seeing a, a study of how much a, a Google search costs just in terms of carbon, and it was a bit surprising, especially as somebody who searches uh, frequently on the on the internet. Uh, and then you move into storage. Let's get the bad news out of the way first. <laughs> There's an urban myth going around that Bitcoin consumes the energy consumption of Ireland at the moment. That's wrong. It's about half the energy consumption of Ireland, which isn't uh, particularly good. It's an ongoing debate as to how this moves and, uh, and all that. But ultimately, in my opinion, the reason the energy consumption is so high is that there's a very complicated mining game and you have to put a lot of energy in to be at the table and that allows you to win Bitcoins. And the reason that that energy consumption is so high is to prevent cheating. So I'm not sure that there's going to be much energy savings there. But once you throw the cryptocurrencies out and you're left with a standard distributed ledger, that's a fairly boring data structure. Uh, it does need to communicate, and there will be costs in that in energy terms. And then because these are immutable long-term ledgers, there definitely are uh, significant storage costs. This cuts in two ways. One could argue that what we're doing is just creating these enormous monsters that will last 30 or 40 or 100 years of you know, the ledger of all time of trading or the ledger of all time of shipping or insurance, as I said earlier. Um, however, a number of us are researching ways of reducing that or allowing people to fade away over time or only take the portions that they like. However, it could actually be more efficient because it's a mutual ledger. If everybody comes to rely upon it, uh, we might find ourselves in a position where there are perhaps in take the shipping sector, we might rely on five or six ledgers that are going to be permanent. They'll have a few backups and storages, and we'll all be dipping in and out of that constantly, the way that we do, for example, with Google Mail. But that prevents us, or sorry, doesn't prevent us, it avoids all of us keeping copies of everything. So at the moment in many of these sectors like shipping, I email you the manifest, you email me back a query, I email it back to you with an amendment. We do all of this sort of toing and froing. We might do that with a large number of CCs, you know, carbon copies to boot. And then our servers get cracking 
and they back it up overnight. So we suddenly find ourselves with huge amounts of, of storage anyway, replicated you know, in, in so many locations. If these ledgers get over that sort of hump where they become accepted standard practice, we could oddly uh, see a great reduction in the environmental impact of computing around the world, at least on storage. Oh, so there's some, some hope in that, in that domain, at least. There is. Depending on adoption. That's right. And, I, and it's also one of the reasons I'm skeptical. Like, there may be a cryptocurrency or two that lasts, for, lasts and we, we may need, but some of these proponents who talk about hundreds and thousands of, uh, of accepted, widely used cryptocurrencies will we'll all be sitting in the dark, shivering, you know, trading what are effectively just numbers with each other. Um, so I, I don't see that future happening. But I do see a bright future for the distributed ledgers themselves, which are the dull, boring bits of it. I'm an accountant. You know, ledgers are boring. I love them. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and again, this is the area where there's so much confusion between the entanglement of the blockchain technology itself, the distributed ledgers, and the, and the currency platform. So, uh, and, and the whole question around, will there be money in the future? Will yeah. we not have any, you know, what do we do with that? We, what do we trade? So it's, it's such a radical challenge to the existing way of seeing things. Well, it's probably important, you know, to, to remind people to see the applications. Uh, let me give you a couple of applications you might not think of. So, uh, people are swapping insurance documentation on one. Well, we've got two live applications. One with six reinsurers who are swapping data with each other. We've got another um, uh, a company called SafeShare, which is a, an insurer for the sharing economy, sort of Airbnb type applications. They have a client here in London called Vroomi which is Airbnb for desks, effectively. And Vroomi and they and their London underwriting crowd, plus the clients, are all sharing data through a ledger like this already. Uh, we're also working with a, a number of clinical trials organizations. I can't name all of them, uh, but one of them over here is the University of Middlesex. But we're doing about 50,000 uh, clinical trial uh, recordings a day. And this means that when the FDA looks at the trials four or five years from now, all the data has been recorded immutably. It can't be changed. And in fact, even more importantly, the contract research organizations can't lose the data. We're obviously working with the ethical end of it, but they're trying to bring things forward. So there's a lot more applications. One of the biggest areas, I think, and I think some of the people in future will be, future being three years from now, if I was to show you an application, for example, on my telephone, my mobile phone, cell phone, that had uh, all the, oh, I don't know, the ski resorts in the world, you wouldn't look at me and say, did you use a database to create that? Well, you know, I would look at it and say, well, duh, how else would I do it? I think mutual distributed ledgers have got a big application in identity. So we've got applications, sorry, we have proof of concepts. I, I draw the distinction between that and something working. We have proof of concepts on mobile phones using blockchains to swap identity documentation, a certified uh, documentation service. Somewhat uh, what the government of Estonia, who I mentioned earlier, uh, are using, but sort of private sector versions of these. And three years from now, I think you know nobody's going to ask you, you know, is that being done on a blockchain? Because you'd look at them and go, well, of course it is. How else do you think I would have done it? So I, I think these are coming into wider acceptance more rapidly than people see. But you know, very few people today talk about the database revolution, and I think in a few years nobody's going to really talk very much about the mutual distributed ledger revolution. <laughs> yeah, no, no, exactly. And I'm glad you mentioned the identity because that was something that I think slips right under the radar screen for most people. I think in one of your articles I read, 
most 2.5 billion people lack official identification and 1.5 billion of those are over 14. And, and you mentioned something about the, the impact on remittance costs and, and crime and corruption. So so that's a big shift because it, it means that blockchain can actually contribute benefit to society by providing, cleaning up those areas where transparency doesn't exist. You're absolutely correct. I, I You know, 2.5 billion out of 7 billion is a lot of people and it's very difficult when uh, I think for a lot of people in North America, it's even difficult for those of us here in London who like to think we're slightly more connected to grasp how bad that is. I hasten to add, I, I think they know who they are. It's just that it's not legally acceptable identity that they have. And we've seen, uh, due to the predominance of kind of anti-money laundering rules, we've basically seen Western banks move out of a, a lot of developing world markets, which is a bit strange and sad in a way because I feel government regulation is actually pushing uh, many of our major Western banks out of the high growth areas. You know, these are going to be the eight, ten percent uh, GDP growth areas in the future, and we're retreating just at the time we ought to be, we ought to be moving in and trying to help. But these countries are looking at uh, distributed ledger technology very, very seriously. Estonia has been out there actively promoting to other governments how they can copy what uh, a small country of 1.3 million, but don't sniff at 1.3 million people who've been on a ledger like this for over half a decade. You know, it's pretty impressive what they've achieved there. And other countries can copy that. Are there any other ways blockchain technology can serve as a force for positive change in society? I think in all sorts of ways. And uh, again, this is the Ivy theory, you know, growing around it. Uh, to me, one of the biggest areas is uh, in tracking uh, what's called um, provenance or chain of custody. So how do I follow something from source to to consumption and how do I see that it's been handled in an effective manner? This, uh, this, this applies to whole areas of food safety. It applies to forestry products, which I mentioned earlier. Um, I wrote a book, The Price of Fish, uh, based on um, my experiences with a colleague of mine, Ian Harris, and that was uh, focused on the Marine Stewardship Council, which is sustainable fishing. So all of these tracking mechanisms have been historically uh, very expensive because you're trying to make a diffuse industry work together. And secondly, the industry doesn't trust you. If you ever became very important, like I could not sell a fish unless I could prove I had a certificate, the people issuing the certificate have a temptation uh, to up the price. One of the, uh, one of the areas that Barclays has uh, been claiming to work with is a, is a, a, very, um, a very passionate woman by the name of Leanne Kemp out of Australia. She's created a system called Everledger, which is trying to handle blood diamonds. And she's got some 3 million certifi diamond certificates on a distributed ledger for people to share so they can validate uh, how the diamond has, has moved from the mine into processing, been cut into 12 other diamonds, mounted and, and passed on. I don't want to make it sound too easy. It's, it's quite a difficult task when she has a road ahead of her, but she's making a lot of good headway. Well, and, and it hits home on the ethical supply chain issues, which are not just in blood diamonds. There's a you know, it goes cuts across into the fashion industry and, and clothing and the source of clothing. And uh, I, I mean, just off the top, that's what I think of. Well, if we've got time for one quick story, which is uh, I think shows you where this could go. We were approached last year by some U.S. insurers who had in turn been approached by uh, electrical utilities in the States. And the utilities were saying, how are you going to insure uh, situations where we uh, have differential energy contracts if we're allowed to turn people's appliances on and off? So to remind you, you know, a large electricity company would love to have control of the appliances, not to put you in the dark or anything, but just when they have these load peaks and things like that, 
uh, they want to be able to turn the appliances off so they don't have to kick in extra generators for a few seconds and things like that. A lot of load balancing applications. Now, we've been talking about this for 30 years, but it looks like it's getting closer. And certainly if the clients are asking the insurers how do they insure it, that's, that's quite telling. Okay, so you come home on a warm summer's night in Kansas, and you open your refrigerator, and it's full of mush. Who do you call? Well, you call your insurance company. And they say, well, you got one of these newfangled energy contracts. It was your electricity company that turned it off. So you ring the electricity company, and they say, no, no, it was poorly installed. So you ring your installer, says nothing wrong, it all checks out. And you might have uh, unplugged a Hoover or a vacuum. You, you might also, it's, it's, it is a known fraud in the States, you might have decided to turn you know, frozen food into liquid assets because you, were, you, know, you didn't have quite enough cash at uh, the end of the month. So those are the sorts of problems. Now, what's going to happen? Your lawyer is going to write a stiff letter to the electricity company saying, could you please record for me all the second-by-second by microsecond transactions that you sent to my client's refrigerator or freezer? No, no, no. And what you'll be doing is writing that onto a distributed ledger. So to me, one of the big announcements was last year when IBM and Samsung announced that they were going to create an Internet of Things distributed ledger, which they called ADAPT. And, you know, I can see this for all sorts of areas. How are autonomous vehicles going to work? You know, nine radar on your car, talking to cars ahead, behind, and to either side, talking to the roadway, talking to the meteorological or weather service, uh, talking to traffic control, and then bang, you hit something. What, your lawyer's going to write letters to all these people, and then his paralegal is going to spend months sorting out who did what to whom? No, this has got to be solved automatically. And back to the seven billion people on the planet, you know, I think IBM, Samsung, and I'm afraid I share their vision, we're looking at... Uh, distributed ledgers for those 7 billion people by their heating systems, security systems, their lighting systems, their mobile phone network, their health, their Fitbits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's 7 billion times 10, 20, or 30. And therefore, I see a few hundred billion distributed ledgers as the future, not one sort of all-encompassing blockchain. Talking about scale and scope, pretty impressive. It certainly is. I hear a lot of skeptics and they say, you know, there's going to, this won't happen. Blockchain you know, distributed ledgers are never going to succeed. What do you say to them? Well, um, well, firstly, I think they're wrong. <laughs> I mean, they are succeeding. The blockchains are finding applications all over the place without question. And we're moving from, you know, ideas and proofs of concept into actual applications in use. And I've mentioned a few of them in, in the pharmaceutical sector, in the insurance sector, We've got a big time-stamping engine, which your, your listeners are welcome to go and use for free. In fact, there you go. Go and use a blockchain for free. So you're not just talking about it, use it. Go to metronomo.com. So that's M-E-T-R-O-G-N-O-M-O, metronomo.com. And it's a free time-stamping engine that they can go out and use and see what, the, what this technology does. So there's a lot of applications already happening there. It's like everything. It takes a bit of time. And it took a little bit of confidence. Bitcoin seemed to have given a number of people the confidence that this stuff worked in practice. And that's, that's been a good thing, as I said. Michael, I want to thank you very much for being on uh, the program. Where can people go for more information? Well, um, I, I would recommend two sites. If they wish to go to my commercial site, that's CN, Z-Y-E-N or Z-Y-E-N for your uh, uh, American uh, colleagues. Uh, and the other one is longfinance.net. Uh, which is our pro bono work. And we try and publish just about everything there. There are copious reports up there uh, and links to various sites. Uh, and I am on email and very happy to answer queries or questions. 
And again, thank you very much for being a part of the program. Really appreciate it chatting with you again. A delight, Donna. Thank you. I'm Donna Jones. I provide personal growth for business, mentoring leaders and decision makers who are really ready to adapt their awareness and inner skill set to both meet and match the complexity and speed of change. I also bring intuitive insight into decision making and leadership expansion so that collaboration can benefit from conflicting perspectives and higher trust. By embedding a healthy balance between certainty and uncertainty, growth at a personal and organizational level has a serious chance. Contact me through LinkedIn or through www.fominsighttoaction.com. And it's Donna, D-A-W-N-A, 